Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. How do we help young adults navigate faith, friendships, finances, and the future? Well, my guest today is Jonathan J.P. Pecluda, and his book is Welcome to Adulting, and we're going to be talking about that today. But uh, J.P. is the teaching pastor at Harris Creek Baptist Church in Waco, Texas, uh, formerly a teaching pastor at Watermark Church in Dallas and former leader of The Porch, and uh, influential gathering of thousands of young adults who come to hear the gospel and get equipped for kingdom purposes. Uh, Pakuda came to understand the grace of the gospel in his early 20s after being involved in different churches his entire life, and that really ignited a passion for him in the, in, to reach people in their 20s and 30s. And uh, yeah, so my guest today is J.P. Pakuda, and so J.P., thanks for joining us today. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is exciting. So we here at Impact 360, we work with Next Generation. We work with students, high school, college students. We have a, have a gap year, our Impact 360 fellows, and then we try to launch them into that next season and want them to continue to grow up in their faith. And you've written this book, Welcome to Adulting. And yeah. before we get into that, which I think I love the title, maybe talk a little bit about your own story and journey and how you came to care about uh, working specifically with uh, young adults especially. Well, you guys are getting after it and an expert on this generation. So I'm so grateful for just your expertise and your influence. And thanks for having me on to, to be able to speak about a generation that I care so much from. And just as you said in that bio, I did become a believer in my early 20s. And so that's just ignited this passion for me to continue to reach young adults for the cause of Christ. And so I've gotten to change the context of that, some moving my family to Waco. But for me, I was raised in a small town, Cuero, Texas, 6,000 people in the middle of nowhere, South Texas. And when I got to high school, it was kind of, a, I would say, I experienced an identity crisis. And people say, well, that's, you know, all high school students experience an identity crisis. But for me, I grew up on a farm. I was in 4-H and FFA agricultural programs. I showed hogs, rabbits, chickens, goats, steers, you know, 4-H and FFA. I had both ears pierced, first tattoo at 14, drove a 1979 Mercedes-Benz with hydraulics that super fly on the back. <laughs> and so, you know, rode a skateboard everywhere. When usually by that time, they're like, okay, identity crisis, I get it. You know, drugs, all kinds of just different identities that I, I pursued. And I kind of straightened up my senior year. And my mom, who was a counselor, she said, well, you can go away to college for two years or you can stay here for four. And I was like, I'm so out. And so I moved to Waco, actually, and went to a two-year technical college here. I say I crammed four years of partying into two years. The spiritual climate of my life is I was, was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school for nine years and really came to embrace this idea that God was kind of this sheriff in the sky that was going to get me for doing wrong things. And in college, I was doing lots of wrong things. And so I didn't want anything to do with God. And so I just I continued to just pursue, they say, drug, sex, and rock and roll, in my case, drug, sex, and hip-hop. And I graduated somehow. I moved to Dallas, and I was at a bar 17 years ago, and someone invited me to Watermark. And I went, hung over, you know, sat in the back row. I smelled like smoke from the night before. And I began to wrestle with, what do I believe about God? I've always said that I believe there's a God, but I've always done whatever I wanted to do. And so I just started, I was like, what, you know, what if he's the Hindu God, the Buddhist God, the Jewish God, the Islamic God? How do I know? And I began to kind of read about world religions. 
And in doing so, I kept tripping over the historical character of Jesus. And I was like, what are the odds I'd be born to the right country with the right religion? But as I kept tripping over Jesus and just his character and history, I was really blown away how this guy born in Bethlehem became so world famous. And this carpenter that lived in Nazareth became the single most polarizing character in the history of history, that he would reset the calendar 2,019 years ago, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That, that how did this nobody reset the calendar? And I realized it's because he came back to life. And not just had he come back to life, but I realized that his death was a payment for my sins, that I didn't have to pay for my sins in hell because Christ had paid for them on the cross. And that reality, the idea of grace, that I've been saved by grace through faith, changed everything and changed you know, what I did for fun and who I hung out with, how I dated, how I talked, how I dressed, and ultimately what I did for a living. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the quick version of the story. Yeah, no, what an amazing story of just God's grace and pursuing you in that. I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home necessarily either, and I came to Christ at 17 and, and can resonate with a lot of what you shared and just even kind of some of the similar passions in that. And how has God kind of used your story to be able to connect with young adults kind of right where they're at? And then while you're at it, maybe, maybe talk about that term adulting, because like, that's actually a thing, right? So what, what does that mean for people who don't know what adulting means? Yeah. So, you know, I, I do believe that God takes our mess and makes it our message, and, and in this case, my ministry, and that there's strength in the vulnerability and the authenticity and the transparency of sharing our struggles. And so for me, you know, when I came on staff at Watermark, I'm in vocational ministry now. I, I barely know the Bible. I've been discipled, but I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing, and I understand the importance of growing. And and now I've, I've been discipled. I've, I've learned the Bible in this journey, and one day they asked me to teach. And really, all I felt like I was bringing to the table is I understood the audience, because five years prior to, I was them. I was where they were at. I was, I was struggling with pornography. I was struggling with probably an addiction, not probably, it was an addiction to sex and relationships with women and alcohol and the party scene and wanted to be a millionaire before I was 30. And so all those things were just in the rearview mirror five years prior. And, uh, and so as I walked up on stage, it was just like, hey, I, I know where you guys are at. I know what you're struggling with. I, I understand it. I've been there. I was just recently there. And I found freedom, and I found this Jesus, and he offers us something good. And I'm not drunk right now. I'm completely sober. I'm in my right mind. I'm not naive. I've not been brainwashed. And I'm telling you that Jesus is better. And, you know, God built a ministry around that message. And then this idea of adulting is, you know, it did make its way into the dictionary. So it is, it is an official word now. And I just think it's this idea of growing up. Like, what is it? It's, it's hard, you know. How do, we, how do we become and present as, as adults and get into the real world? And so it's, the definition is the practice of behaving in a way characteristic of a responsible adult, especially the accomplishment of a mundane but necessary task. Mm-hmm. And I think that for 20-somethings, if we get out of college, and our entire life has been this structured, you know, you go to this class, and this class, and this class, and pass this grade, and this class, and this class. That's what we've been doing. And then you get in the real world, and you're like, this is it? Like, this is what I've been training for? And there's a desire in all of us to do something bigger than ourselves. We want to change the world. We want to live this heroic life. We want to pursue a heroic vision. But in reality, we're chained to a desk. We're getting coffee for somebody. You know, we're getting stuff off the printer. 
and it just it just feels like this anticlimactic. Gosh, I mean, should I go back and take the GMAT? Should I go back to school? Should I? Am I in the wrong job? Am I in the wrong city? And we start a- a- answering. I'm sorry, asking all these questions because we just feel disappointed with life. And so that's why I wrote "Welcome to Adulting" because in the porch for the past 12 years, I just saw so much of, of life for a young adult. It's, it's pattern recognition. I see guys that and girls that do these things that end up in these consequences, these catastrophes, this disaster. And I see guys and girls that make these choices that end up in this you know, reward, this success, this victorious life. And I just started writing down those patterns, and it turned into a book. No, that, and that's super helpful because there's a lot of great insights in here, and we're only going to be able to scratch the surface. So I encourage people to definitely check out a copy of Welcome to Adulting uh, Conversation, having a day with Jonathan or J.P. Pecluda. And, uh, and so, you know, as we think about this, you know, growing up, one of those great things for us is, hey, freedom, you know, we're free, right? And we think, cool, this freedom, I can do what I want now, but you actually talk about how that can be a trap and that too much freedom can actually be harmful. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think so often what we want freedom from is integrity. Uh, we want the freedom to do whatever we want to do. And we don't understand that that actually makes us an enemy of the cross of Christ. Uh, Paul says that, you know, there are those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their mind is set on earthly things. Their God is their stomach. It means they do whatever they want to do. They eat whatever they're hungry for. And so in what happens is, is we want the freedom. Let's just take pornography, for example. We want the freedom to look at pornography. We want the freedom to experience you know, sexual release whenever we want. And so you begin to do that. And now all of a sudden you can't stop doing that. I, I've, over the past 12 years, I've met with thousands of men and women who were enslaved to pornography. They couldn't stop. They, they were stuck. They, they didn't know how to get out of that cage. And it was all because of something they wanted the freedom to pursue. Another example would be a relationship. You know, you want the freedom to date somebody that your family and loved ones are saying, hey, they're no good for you, but you date them, and all of a sudden you're stuck in that relationship, and your heart is theirs, and you can't get out of it. Alcoholism would be another one. Drug use. I mean, the, an easy one would be like heroin addict. If somebody shoots up with heroin because they wanted to experience some release or some high and now it's it's slowly stripped them of everything in their life they can't see their children they're out on the streets they're homeless their family's gone they've written off everybody all for the sake of this drug that they wanted the freedom to pursue and they become enslaved to it and we are slaves to Christ alone we're bond servants to Jesus and he's the only uh, drug, I say in quotes, metaphorically, that leads to life. And what also he does by the power of his Holy Spirit is when we experience healing from those things, be it pornography, be it heroin, be it a relationship, be it you know drugs, alcohol, whatever, when we experience freedom through Christ in those things, it's like we're given a key. Our jail cell, our prison cell has been unlocked, and we have the key through our story that we can unlock other cells as well. And I think that's really uh, key to what God did through the Apostle Paul and just how he does, you know, take our mess and make it our ministry. No, I think that's really helpful insight, you know, and as we think about freedom, you know, one of the corollaries with that, of course, is this question of authority, right? And so I think authority is seen as not a good thing. So is authority a good thing? And what kinds of authorities are most young adults under, and what should that dynamic look like? And say more about that. Yeah. I think, let me back up and just say, if you said, what do you think is the biggest 
problem for young adults, millennials, Gen Z, going into the workplace. I think expectations is, you know, every disappointment we experience comes from our expectations. And our entitlement, which is a flavor of expectations, our entitlement is the highest platform from which we fall. And so when we go into the workplace expecting to be the authority, expecting to be the boss, to fast track to that CEO position or that executive position, we are setting ourselves up for tremendous despair, disappointment, discouragement, and even depression. And the reality is we're, we are all, you said, is authority good? It's, it's a reality. What Good or bad, before I make a judgment call on that, I would just say it's an absolute Everybody is under authority. Mm -hmm. Every CEO serves a board of directors. Every employee has an employer. Everybody is under authority, a governmental authority, and then, of course, God, our ultimate authority. And so the reason that it's a good thing or where it's good is because there's parts of our lives where we are slave to our flesh, as we mentioned already, that, you know, we need help. We need authority. We need someone to put the boundaries in place. But then I would also say that bad authority is also an absolute uh, reality, that there, you know, every authority that we have apart from God is imperfect. And so we have to figure out how to navigate this broken world with corrupt authority. What does it look like for us to serve? And the Scripture speaks a lot about this, even in, in the context of slave-master. Now, we know that slavery in the Bible was not racial. It was different. There's a, a bond-servant relationship there. But I like that the Scripture uses that example because we think, gosh, that's going to be some of the most corrupt authority is, is an abusive slave master, and yet it still gives us instructions on how to, how to honor God under that authority. In Titus 2.10 it says, to work diligently so that you would make the teachings of Christ our Savior attractive. Colossians 3 says, you know, that we're, it's, it's really the Lord Christ that we're, we're working for, not our earthly masters. And so these principles that we pull from the text, it, it tells us how to live and dwell under authority. Of course, in Romans, we're talking about the, the governmental authorities and then our ultimate authority as God. And so we, we work hard. We work with excellence under authority. We, we work when their eyes are on us and when they're not, diligently. Also that we would make our God, our ultimate authority, attractive. And the only time that we would rebel against our earthly authority is when it is in contrast to our spiritual authority, our ultimate authority of God, when, when they would ask us to sin. But short of that, you know, we want to do everything we can with excellence. No, that that's really helpful, helpful advice. You know, we live in a, you know, follow your heart culture, a you do you, speak your truth, you know, all of those kind of slogans and sound bites. But you actually talk about in your book that, you know, following your passion is actually not good advice. So what yeah. what do you mean by that? And kind of unpack that a little bit, because that probably might strike people as, really? What, what are you saying there? Yeah, and I would just say, you know, it, there's there's an overstatement there, shock value. It may be fine advice. It may be advice, some applicable advice, but by and large, the following your heart, following your passion, it's certainly incomplete advice and most of the time bad advice. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because our passions change like the wind. Think about it. I mean, a a lot of your listeners right now, if you've been in a relationship with someone that you're really passionate about and then it ended, you know, and, and you look in the rearview mirror and there's just all these relationships piled up. Maybe you've had different jobs. Maybe you've changed your major. Maybe you were certain that you wanted to do this. And when you started doing it, you realized you weren't passionate about it. And so it, it, it's been said, well, I think Malcolm Gladwell talked about, you know, it takes 10,000 hours to master something. 
And that's 10,000 hours of grind. That's 10,000 hours of pushing through. I'm not passionate about it, but I'm going to continue to do that to build up an expertise. You know, the, the scripture, Proverbs 4.23, says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And so what it, what it means, you know, everything you do comes from it or flows from it. What it means to guard your heart is to be careful what you feed it, because your heart's like a bloodhound. It actually follows what it's fed. And so you don't want to follow your heart until you've informed your heart. You don't want to follow your passions until you've brought your passions, aligned your passions with the desires of God, who's going to know infinitely better than you, being creator and all, the one who formed you in your mother's womb. And so before you say, okay, what do I want to do? We, as as people with a biblical worldview, we ask first, okay, God, what do you want me to do? What did you create me to do? What did you purpose me to do? And how do I make sure I stay within bounds of that, within the boundaries of you know, God's creation, God's intentions for me, and bring my own desires under the submission and authority of, of Him? And so I would say don't follow your heart, inform your heart. Follow your passions can be really, really bad advice primarily because your passions change. No, that, that's great. I mean, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The order there is really important, delighting in the things the Lord delights in and, and, and being shaped by His commands and, and what's true about the world and being not conformed to the power of this world. So that's so right. important to get those in the right order, especially as we're starting out that journey into young adulthood and all the exciting things that are ahead and everything else. You know, thinking about friendship today, friendship can be kind of complex, right? And as young adults, what are you seeing? And even as you were writing this book, you even talk about the lonely generation and kind of why are friendships important and what's the current state of where a lot of young adults are at on this? Yeah, you know, technology is a tool. And uh, it is my opinion that this is an area that just it has not served us well. I think we are becoming less and less relational, less and less you know, in-person connections, and more and more, you know, text message, Instagram comments, Snapchat. And so we're using technology to supplement something that I don't think it will ever be a suitable substitution for. And I say that to that question because we have, you know, 5,000 Facebook friends or 5,000 Instagram followers or whatever it is, and yet we're relationally running on empty. We have very few people who actually know us and very few people who we actually know. And the spiritual life was never meant to be done alone. You know, we were always meant to be connected to a body, the body of Jesus, his church, a local expression of a church. And Hebrews 10.25 does not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but continue in that. And so I think the current state of relationships is not good and as it as we're talking about friendships and community and I think the solution is to make sure that we have a a group of people that we're meeting with consistently for the purpose of accountability spurring us on toward love and good deeds challenging us to love God and to love others and so it's an easy solution you know it just it just takes a time and a place and a people it's as simple as you know calling up other believers that are surrendered to the Spirit and saying, hey, can you meet me at this coffee shop on this day at this time? I'm going to be there every week. would love for you guys to be there. We'll pray. We'll talk about what we're learning in the Scriptures. You know what? There's three questions that I, I ask with my guys. It's, it's all around this idea of, of feeding. You know, how did you, how did you feed others? And that's like, who did you pour into this week? Who did you share the gospel with? How did you feed your soul? 
And so that's, you know, what have you read? What has God taught you? What has stirred your affections for Christ? And then how did you feed your flesh? Which is confession, James 5.16, for the purpose of prayer and healing. And so it's kind of another way to say it is input, output, confession. Input is, you know, what what's stirring my affections for Jesus. Output is who am I pouring into, and then confession, obviously. And so that's what I do with, with my small group of people. That's something that I think, you know, that, that can happen in authentic community. But I don't know that we're getting better at this relationship game as, as technology gets more and more, quote-unquote, helpful. I don't think we're getting better at it. Yeah, I actually think it's it's weakening us in some ways. I think it's undoing some of the natural strengths and resiliences that we had earlier, you know. And so I, I think I'm I'm with you. Is I think we're going to look back ten years from now as a culture and all the technology and all the smartphones and all the social media and kind of go, what were we thinking? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's going to be enough studies and empirical research on that that people will finally go, you know, not such a good idea. But yeah. you know, and then and that leads to a very natural place where people don't naturally like to talk about, but how do you resolve conflict? Because, right, because as you grow up and you're a young adult or an older adult, you're going to have conflict with people. What does that look like to engage and resolve conflict well? Because that seems to be a skill that is not as often taught, and so then people don't always react well in relationships, and there's a lot of pain and brokenness that can come from that. So share a little bit about how to engage uh, conflict and why that's an important thing to develop. You know, Jonathan, you're right. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like this is taught, but yet God loved us so much. He gave us so much instruction around this idea of conflict and conflict resolution and this idea of peace, you know, as long as it's up to you, live at peace with one another, is a mark of, of a follower of Jesus. And yet still, as Christians, we stink at it. And so, you know, Ephesians 4.3 says, Be diligent at preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And yet the first thing or first inclination is when we get sideways with somebody is to avoid them, to gossip about them, to feel bad toward them, to have conversations with them in our head, to have conversations about them to other people. It's like to do anything except for what God commands us to do, which is to go to them and to tell them to express the hurt. And so Matthew 5 says if, you, if you're leaving a gift at the altar and you realize your brother has something against you, run and be reconciled to them with a sense of urgency. And I think the first thing that we can do is Matthew 7, remove the log out of our eye, so understand our part in the conflict, own 100% of our part. If you're a part of the conflict, you have a part in the conflict. And so try to understand, okay, what is it that I can own here? Have I been embittered toward my friend? Have I said anything about them? Have I caused any part of this? Is there anything I can own? Maybe you just have 2% to own in the, uh, 100% of the conflict, own 100% of your 2%. Mm-hmm. But start there. Say, okay, before I dive in, I'd love to ask your forgiveness for. Will you please forgive me for and own your part? And then, you know, communicate to them. In a Matthew 18 is really where we find this model that we would go to them and we would say, okay, I came here today because I want you to know that you hurt me by. This is what you did, and you, you hurt me and give them an opportunity to ask forgiveness. And if they do, you've won them over and you're reconciled. It's a beautiful thing. If they don't, Matthew 18 clearly states that you would go and you'd bring somebody with you, that you wouldn't talk about it outside that circle, but you would bring them into the circle and you'd say, okay, I want you to hear, I'm, I'm telling John that you know he's hurt me by, but he doesn't seem to be responding well to that. And so I'd love for you to mediate this conversation. If they listen to the two of you, it says you've won them over 
is a beautiful thing. But if they don't, it says then you go to the church that you would bring in a church leader and you say, hey, would you help us? We're two followers of Jesus Christ that we just can't get along right now over this topic. There's been hurt here. Would you help us to be reconciled? People don't want to do that. That sounds like a lot of work. But it, when it's done correctly, it's a really, really beautiful restorative process. And if they listen to the church, then you've won them over. And if they don't, it says you would treat them like an unbeliever, which is to share the gospel with them, to love them, but to wait on them, you know, and to not fellowship with them because, you know, they've broken fellowship and they refuse to be restored at that point. They refuse to be shepherded. And so this is where church discipline would come into place. And that's not taught for some reason when it's so clearly in the Scripture. And I would say firsthand I've seen really beautiful reconciliation happen from that process being played out. No, that is so helpful. And for many people, maybe that's the first time they've ever heard a clear explanation of what that could actually look like and what that should look like as we inevitably sin against one another and need to ask forgiveness. And I think those are really, really important things for us to develop because what the enemy then loves to do in the midst of that bitterness and unforgiveness is get in there and sow division and distrust and suspicion and all those things. And then we end up divided as opposed to being in life together, pursuing the mission God's called us to. And that's that's not a good thing. And so I really appreciate your input on that. One of the things that I appreciated about your book is you share your story and you talk about different things and that people struggle with, just the real world struggles. You know, more and more these days we're seeing more uh, young adults struggle with things like suicidal thoughts or cutting or depression or pornography. And, and you know, obviously you've, you've shared that some of that's part of your story, but can you also talk about how you see young adults breaking free from these things and what, what does that look like when, when that happens? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun And it's a beautiful picture of them coming into the body of Christ, coming into the church, being surrounded with people who know them and love God and love them and know God, and experiencing that community and that healing, and then taking that that narrative of whatever it was that they've been restored from. And like like I said before, they, they now have this kind of key to help other people. And so this cycle of people helping people within the body of Christ and the church is built and strengthened and equipped and they're they're learning the scriptures and understanding how to live with the biblical worldview. I think that is you know, that was the model that God left us. And when we when we walk in that model there's so much life and healing and, and beauty. When we break that process there's death and hurt and imprisonment and slavery. And so a, a dear friend of mine, you know, he was let's say he was married, there was infidelity in his marriage, both directions. There was a really nasty divorce, which he turned to alcoholism. Now he's a single guy in Austin. His alcoholism gets so bad, he gets to a place where he'll pay homeless men to drink with him. You know, he'll just, he'll cover their bar tab if they'll just sit with him and and have a drink. And he goes home one day and loads up a shotgun, 12 gauge, and puts it in his mouth. And as he, you know, cold steel, pressing against his mouth and about to pull the trigger, you know, he just said, like, all right, I'm, I'm at the lowest of lows and, you know, reaches out for help and comes into a, a local expression of the church where he's surrounded with believers who now offer him accountability. He starts a 12-step recovery program uh, like Regeneration or Celebrate Recovery, Reclaim, 
and uh, as he moves through those those processes, those steps, he starts to experience healing. He begins to serve in his church. Uh, he gets to the place where he shares his story of of potentially, you know, wanting to kill himself, wanting to take his life. And other people, of course, always respond with empathy. They say, "Me too." You know, me. I was there. I was in a similar place. They're experiencing healing around him. God grows a ministry around that story. It becomes one of the largest recovery ministries in the country. So that would be, you know, one. There's a girl who had an abortion and just thought, you know, she's going to take that to her grave. She's never going to tell anybody about that abortion. And one day she responds to the Holy Spirit in, in a message. She comes forward. She's talking to somebody, and she, you know, she just said, you know, I never thought I'd tell anybody this, but I had an abortion. And girls around her start saying, well, me too. We we thought we'd never tell anybody, but because you had the courage to tell someone, we're we're telling you, you know, us too. And they start meeting, and, and God grows around them a ministry to women who've had abortions who begin to experience the grace of God and the healing that takes place. And, you know, they name those children that they never knew. And, you know, they experience the grace of God in and through that, and then they're able to minister to other women who thought they would never say that. And so I could say that, you know, you could replace those stories, those are alcoholism and abortion or shame, but you could replace that with depression, with cutting, anxiety. I mean, all of those stories. My, myself, you know, I struggled with anxiety. I mean, at one point in my life, I would preach on anxiety having never really known what it was. I just thought it was like worry. And then, you know, two years ago, it kind of jumped on me and experienced anxiety for the first time. And, you know, the the temptation is just to despair and to turn to depression and to, like, fear life, but just got help in the body, you know, turned to people, would talk about it, began to experience healing in and through it as I would share about it. You know, people would say, me too, me too. I mean, you know, there's, I could share my symptoms with them and they would just be like, gosh, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly what I'm going through and then to begin to experience that healing. So today that when anxiety jumps on me or when I experience it kind of welling up, I, I know that it's it's not the end and that there's healing and just that it's it's just a, a bad day and not something to, to spiral out of control from. And so those would be some examples. Amen. Well, thanks for sharing those stories and your own story. I mean, the gospel is good news for all of us. We never outgrow the gospel. And right. that really shining light in those places reminds us that in the darkness has to flee and we, we remove the power of the enemy to come in and whisper what shame in one ear and guilt in the other and then we just get That's that right. cycle and That's so exactly right. the gospel is true it's good news jesus is risen this is our hope it's a living hope god is in the business of changing lives and no one is ever too far gone and and i love love hearing stories of that because it's a good reminder to us every day that we must always be reminding ourselves of the gospel you that's know, absolutely right, and that's the, that's central to all three of those stories. I mean, all of those, Christ became bigger than the struggle of alcohol, the struggle of, of, of shame from an abortion, the struggle of anxiety. And, and he says, in this world you will have trouble, but when we turn to him and we understand that his death was a payment for our sins, that he was God's provision for us, and that by his wounds we are healed— and, and we begin to live for Him. Now we have a new meaning, a new purpose in our life that we begin to live for Christ, and not for His grace, but from His grace. Because He's He's extended grace to us, then we get to be an agent of that same grace to others. So, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that. that. That is so well said. Well, I'm going to ask you one more question to wrap things up. But before I do, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're wanting to think about, okay, Maybe you've got a son or daughter or a teenager, and you want help with them kind of having opportunities to 
own their faith and grow up and build a, a strong Christian worldview and learn to have these kind of relationships and wisdom in life. Here at Impact 360, we'd love to partner with you and the work that you're doing with your kids, whether that's through our summer experiences at Propel or Immersion or our nine-month uh, gap year called Impact 360 Fellows uh, for high school graduates. We would just love to be an ally for you in this. You can find out more at impact360.org. We'd love to uh, be a part of that story for your kids and helping them build and own their faith in, the, in these things. And also, if you're a parent or a leader, church leader, somebody listening to this, uh, we've created a resource for you called GenZLab.com, which is a free resource where you can get information about the next generation, the generation after millennials that's coming next, and what are the opportunities and challenges there. So we just finished up season one of Gen Z Lab, and then the second season is on its way. So definitely check that out at GenZLab.com. But Jonathan, in your book, Welcome to Adulting, is so good. I really appreciate it. I want to commend it to everybody. But I want to ask you the question as we wrap up. If you were going to kind of go back in time and speak to your probably 18-year-old self, um, what would you say as kind of the most important advice that you'd say, knowing what you know now, what, what would you say to kind of your 18-year-old self then? Yeah, I would say go through Impact 360's Gap Year program. You didn't ask me to say that, and yeah. here's why I'm I'm kind of not kidding. I, I would say I have seen so much success from discipleship programs, from you know young adults, I'll say, that just aren't ready for the real world. They ha- they're about to experience more freedom than they've ever experienced, and they don't have the maturity in place to experience that. And they they want to know Jesus, they want to know God, but no one's ever sat down and really taught them the Word and how to live with a biblical worldview. And so I do commend those things that you just shared to your listeners, especially you know if, if this falls in the hands of parents and whatnot. And so that's what I would tell my 18-year-old self is a, is a form of get discipled. You know that there's that Jesus is greater than all of the things that you're about to try to seek life in, and you're going to save yourself so much pain if you can learn from the scars of others rather than your own. I mean, even if you just learn from the scars of Solomon, you know, who just read Ecclesiastes 12 or Ecclesiastes all together and just said, okay, if it wasn't enough for him, it's not going to be enough for me. If nothing under the sun is going to satisfy, then I have to go beyond the, the sun, the S-U-N, to find the S-O-N, the son of God, and to, and to live for him. And so that'd be the biggest thing, you know, that I would I would want to push myself toward, practically speaking, is some sort of discipleship, some sort of training and growing so that I would learn, you know, and have that maturity and have a, a worldview that I can navigate life with. And that's why I wrote Welcome to Adulting. Out of my own experience of anxiety is coming a, another resource, the Welcome to Adulting Survival Guide, which is a 42-day devotional. It just has a daily devotional in it that, you know, I don't care about selling books. I really don't. I never did this to try to sell books or be a best-selling author. I just wanted to create helpful resources. And Jonathan, I know that's your heart, too. It's like, hey, we want to help this next generation be wildly successful in in navigating this world with a biblical worldview, navigating this world and seeing it in the way that it was intended to be seen. And, and uh, man, I hope, you know, your listeners are wildly successful in worldly terms so that they can use any credibility that the world entrusts to them to point others to know Christ in a greater way and to live for Jesus. So, well, Amen. Well, thanks for the kind words, and you've written an outstanding book called Welcome to Adulting, Navigating Faith, Friendship, Finances, and the Future. 
so many good conversations. We could have, I mean, there's so much in there that we could have talked about, but we'd be here a couple hours. So we'll maybe have to do it again sometime. But I want to encourage people to check out that book, Welcome to Adulting. And I just really appreciate just your heart, your honesty, the biblical lens you bring to that, the experiences, and your passion for seeing people transformed by the gospel. So thanks so much for writing that and giving us good resources like this. My joy, brother. Thank you for having me on. And and, uh, man, just excited to share with you today and be on with you today. So thanks for your thoughtful questions. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.